Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, Episode 65, Native Americans 5, The Southwest. Quote, Throughout much of continental North America that today is included in the eastern and southwestern United States, Native Americans developed mixed economies based on farming, New World domesticates, combined with wild foods obtained by hunting and gathering. At the time of contact with Europeans, the native peoples in these two regions were cultivating many of the same crops, although there were no real powers to travel between what is now the western and eastern United States. These areas are markedly different in climate and vegetation. The peoples of these two vast regions followed very different paths in their development of arming economies and their settlement systems, subsistence strategies, political institutions, and religious beliefs. End quote. So opens Indigenous Farmers by Linda Cordell and Bruce Smith. Chapter 4 of the Cambridge History of the Native Peoples of the Americas, Volume 1, Part 1. And this will be the stage of history that we turn to this week. We spent the previous episode looking at the move away from hunter-gathering, but we didn't really give that much time to agriculture, other than mentioning that it developed. It's time to remedy that. We begin this week with the Southwest. And since I'm going to begin with going through tribes, I'm just going to quote once more Cordell and Smith. Quote, In the western region, indigenous farming peoples inhabited the southwestern culture area, which forms part of modern Arizona and New Mexico, entering into southeastern Utah and southwestern Colorado. Aridity is the primary climatic feature, uniting landscapes of topographical diversity, including rugged mountains, mesas, and broad valleys. The region encompasses the low basins, stretching from the Sonoran and Kiwawan deserts, the higher and often wooded Colorado plateaus, and the still higher wooded and forested mountains of central Arizona and New Mexico. Prior to and shortly after European contact, native farming societies extended their settlements onto the undulating short grass plains of Oklahoma and Texas. When the Spaniards first explored this area, beginning in 1539, the diverse peoples of the southwest were united primarily through ties of trade and some shared religious beliefs. They were not united in a single political system or by language. Most of the vast area of northwestern Mexico and the adjacent regions of southern Arizona in the traditional homeland of the peoples who speak languages of the Uto-Aztecan family, including the Pimas and Papagoas. These designations are useful in reference to modern maps of tribal territories and reservations, but they are not always meaningful to the tribes themselves. For example, the terms Pima and Papago 
historically have been used by Euro-Americans to refer to people who recognise no such distinction, but view themselves as one people, whom they call O-Odem. People speaking human languages occupied the lower Colorado Valley, the lower Gila River Valley, and the adjacent uplands in California, Arizona, and in southernmost Nevada. The family of human languages belongs to the Hokan language stock. Groups include the Cocopas of the Colorado River Delta, then moving north along the river, the Haliquamias, the Cowans, and the Quechians at the confluence of the Gila and Colorado Rivers, and the Halchidomans, Mojaves, and Hava Supais of the Grand Canyon. Northwest of the Cocopas, along the Colorado River in California, were the De Guerons, Camais, and Pipais. The Wallapace and Yavapace occupied the uplands in the vicinity of the Grand Canyon. The Coco Maricopas and the Opas lived along the Lower Gila. Since European contact, the Haliquimais, Kiwans, Halchidomas, Opas, and Coco Maricopas have merged to form what is today the Maricopa tribe. The Pueblo Indians occupy 12 villages on the southern edge of Black Mesa, Arizona, and 27 villages in New Mexico. The term Pueblo is Spanish for village, and Pueblo Indians share a number of important cultural characteristics in addition to their basic farming and settlement pattern. These characteristics include aspects of religious belief, ceremonialism, and symbolism. Despite the common features of the lifestyle, however, the Pueblo Indians speak six different languages. The Hopis of Arizona speak Hopi, which is within the Uto-Aztecan language family. The New Mexican Pueblo of Zuni speak the Zuni language, which is thought to be related to California Penutian. The Karasan language, which does not seem to be closely related to any other North American Indian languages, is spoken by the New Mexican Pueblos of Acoma, Laguna, Zia, Santa Ana, San Felipe, Santo Domingo, and Cochiti. Tiwa is spoken in the villages of Taos, Picuris, Isleta, and Sedina. Tewa is spoken at San Juan, Santa Clara, San Ildefonso, Bahoque, Nambe, and Tesuque in New Mexico and at Hano or Tewa village on the first Hopi Mesa in Arizona. Today, Jemez Pueblo in New Mexico is the only village at which Towa is spoken, but Towa was also the language of the Pecos Pueblo prior to its abandonment in the 19th century. Tiwa, Tewa, and Towa although separate languages and not dialects of a single tongue, form a closely related language group referred to as Tanoan. Tanoan is part of the Kiowa Tanoan language family. At the time of initial contact with Europeans, 
a number of Pueblo Indian villages were located east of the Sedina Mountains, of the margins of the plains and along the Rio Grande Valley, south of Isleta. These villages were abandoned as a result of events related to European conquest, although descendants of the residents of these villages live among some of the modern pueblos, their languages, Piro and Tompiro, are no longer spoken. All of the groups mentioned above seem to have had a very long history in the southwest and share ancient traditions relating to horticulture and farming. People speaking southern Aztapascan languages, Navajo and Apache, entered the southwest much later, probably in the late 15th or 16th century. Since they were the first observed by Europeans, Navajos and Apaches have practiced some cultivation, which they learned from neighbouring peoples. Their most distinctive economic pattern, however, relates to livestock herding, which they adopted as a result of interaction with European peoples. End quote. First of all, my apologies for pronunciation. And so much for an introduction to the people of the Southwest, a region defined by its climate. The Southwest is an extremely arid area of the United States. The low deserts of the area receive about 20 centimetres of annual rain, with 35 to 40 common in the mountains and on the mesas. It lacks major navigable rivers and a seacoast, as well as plentiful amounts of easily accessible natural resources. It is a mixture of mountains, canyons and basins. This has affected the makeup of the region up to modern times. It remains an area with a higher proportion of Native American settlement, with lack of settlement by Euro-Americans. The dry climate has affected agriculture, as you would expect. Typically, it rains during the winter, and this moisture is used when crops germinate in May and June. The timing of the rains and the length of winter is extremely important. While the deserts of the southwest are famous for their hot summers, the winters can be cold. A late frost, which occurs on the highlands, makes for a very short growing season, and it might not always be possible for corn to be grown year to year. Some scholars suspect that fragility of the agricultural system due to rainfall and the short growing season accounts for changes which are visible in the archaeological record. It also ensured that hunting and gathering have remained important into the modern day. So, when did things really begin to happen in the southwest? The answer to this question is the Late Archaic, a period which spanned from 1500 BC up to AD 200. This time period began with several different crops being introduced to the region, such as corn, beans and squash, and it closes with the introduction of painted ceramics. Corn is the staple crop of North America, but there are issues with its growth in the southwest. The plant developed to the south in the tropics where it was grown by the Maya and other Mesoamerican civilizations, and so the southwest isn't a region particularly well suited to growing the crop. 
there are several different theories about how it happened. Raymond Thompson suggested at the 11th International Congress of Pre- and Proto-Historic Sciences in 1987 that two different varieties arrived in the region from the south, one suited to the highlands and one to the lowlands, while Wirt Wills suggested in his 1988 book, Early Prehistorical Agriculture in the American Southwest, that corn arrived in the region during a particularly wet climatic period, where it spread into the lowlands, and then gradually made its way into the mountainous areas. I'm not going to even try and offer an opinion on the matter, but it's safe to say that much is uncertain about this period. However, we can be confident about some information. Whichever way the crop made its way north, it was soon a very valuable asset. The region is a hard one to live in, and so an extra option of food was not a bad thing at all. Water management systems would have developed to aid in this. We can also be sure that, however it happened, the crop did diversify. So, by 300 BC, there was a variety of corn in the region. Food would be processed and stored in caves and rock shelters. People would live in pit houses and houses. I hesitate to call them villages, although perhaps hamlets would be an appropriate term, appeared in several locations according to whether they lived in the mountains or the lowlands. In the mountains, small mesas which overlooked agricultural land was the preferred location, while in the lowlands, they appeared near wet meadows or by tributary drainages, as these locations could be good for watering the crops. Wills notes the following about the settlement pattern in his article, Early Agriculture and Sedentism in the American Southwest, Evidence and Interpretations for the Journal of World Prehistory. Quote, The implication is that the adoption of maize requires a seasonally repetitive pattern of movement around a particular locality on an annual basis. This may not be sedentism as defined by the extended occupation of a single settlement, but it suggests a very different organisation from the wide-ranging hunter-gatherer tactic that is the preferred forager option. End quote. In addition to houses, these settlements would have had a community lodge, something we call a protokiva. A kiva is a common feature of Pueblo villages in the southwest, and is a partly subterranean religious structure. There would also be squares in the centre, around which the houses would face. By the first century AD, pottery was starting to be made, usually either red or brown. This was in the southern areas, but by about AD 300 it had spread to the more mountainous areas of the north. This was functional pottery rather than decorational. It would be used for storage or for cooking. It is particularly useful for cooking stews, and they can be left unattended while the people worked in the fields or were grinding the corn. This, the close of the late archaic in the southwest, is where we're going to finish things off for this week. 
Next time out, we will enter the classical era. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then please consider signing up for membership. You can do that by going to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and clicking on the PayPal subscription button. You can find us on social media. The Facebook is facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, and I'm also on Twitter, at HistoryJamie. Feel free to send me an email. The address is thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. And I'd like to close with a quick announcement. My good friends Jamie and Z from the British History Podcast are going to be visiting England in a couple of weeks. So I'm going to be meeting them as part of a British History Podcast meetup. This will be in London on the afternoon of Saturday, the 21st of January. Details can be found on the British History Podcast Facebook page. I hope to see some of you then. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.